sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Hey, guys, it's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Yeah, you write us letters. We are the storygaps at gmail.com. That gets your email to us, and then we try to answer. Like this one from Jeff. The disappearance Jeff. of Manic Street Preacher's Richie Edwards is worth an episode. That mystery is bonkers. I wasn't a fan, but like you both, I'm obsessed with everything rock and roll, and that is a fascinating nut to crack. Would love to hear what you figure out. So... First of all, let me just say before we get started that Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, <That's> awesome. <laughs> uh, this is a great question, and and Manic Street Preachers is a band that I came to very late, but I've always liked a lot. Um, I liked a lot of what they've done, both early and more currently, and they sort of are in these two different periods mm. uh, of of what they sound like, and we'll get into that and why that is. But I do want to say before we get too deep in this. A bit of a trigger warning. Um, if you know anything about this story, you know that it involves self-harm and suicide. Those are two of the, the... the You can't talk about this without those two things coming up. So if you are not in the mental space for that today, you may want to revisit this episode at another time. But we hope you can hang, and we'll be respectful uh, and, and kind about it. But do you have any frame of reference for the Manic Street Preachers? Yeah, and I, I came to them late in a different way. So I remember college radio... But I, at the time, I remember thinking like there were a band I had to play ah. that I didn't want to play. That and then when I got out of college, I had a really nice radio job, and they were like, it was like, it wasn't heavy rotation, but like you had to play. You couldn't drop the Manic Street Preachers preacher songs, That's and so funny. I just never bit into it. And then now, twenty years later, um, completely different take on the band well i've always thought like because i knew that you weren't a big fan uh but yeah, i always right. thought they sounded like a band you should be a big fan of right yeah it, it's, it's on like, paper they're definitely a murdoch band and i mean i it's funny they're a, if you know you know band right like my daughter's yeah. best friend lives out of town and she was in town not super long ago and we always talk about music she's a big music head and she's telling me, oh, my God, have you ever heard the Manic Street Preachers? She's like, I know that they've been around forever, but I just discovered them because I listened to a true crime podcast. <laughs> they talked about this band that lost a member. And then I went backwards and I learned about the band. So some people come to it through this story. I also just coincidentally, interestingly, was producing a, a, a an event this summer. It was based around new metal. Like we had a bunch of bands playing you know, bands like Stained, not like the Manic Street Preachers, but we had flown in this guy from LA to help us with the show, and he's a social media influencer DJ guy. That's an actual thing. And the, yeah. du the dude gets in my car, and he notices from across the vehicle, like I don't even know how he noticed it, that I had a Manic Street Preachers Greatest Hits CD in there, and he was like, oh my God, do you have... Do you have, the, is that the Manic Street Preachers? So, like, if you know, you know. Yeah. And if you're British, you know, because they've sold 10 million records worldwide, but it's the US. They're not, a, they're not a household name in the US at all. That is correct. So, in the UK, bigger deal. They're Welsh. They get associate, associated with these bands, same country, Super Furry Animals, which, by the way, McCartney liked. Remember when yeah, that? He was really into them. And, yeah. And the Stereophonics, big stages. They're headliners. Glastonbury, the festival, ring festival. 
They've got 11 NME Awards, 8 Q Awards, and 4 Brit Awards. They've been nominated for the Mercury Prize multiple times. None of those are Grammy Awards. No, no, they, all they're all very think. British awards. And it, if you want to get into this question of like why they never break in America, there's actually a great episode of 2020 Sound. That's a, uh, a, a YouTube show. It's in the show notes. They spent a whole episode breaking this out. But for our purposes, you know, speaking of this disappearance uh, and, and focusing on that, they actually don't really become defined by this tragedy, which is so interesting to me because they've been together for almost 40 years now. They're still active. And and this happens less than a decade into their history. So they've literally been around three times as long as without Richie as they were with Richie. And one of their biggest records, like sort of the record that breaks them as much as they ever will get broken in America, Everything Must Go, that album has a couple songs written by Richie on it uh, because he was working on it, but it comes out after he disappears. So there's a lot of folks who know who don't really know the band with Richie because this is when their sound changes. Yeah, and for a weaker band, something like this happening would kill the band I completely, know. but it didn't. And that record was called Everything Must Go, and that was sort of at the, the height of Britpop. It's a departure for them, and they'll – begin to be open about Richie's absence being the reason why it was a departure. This is a quote from their bass player. His name's Nicky Ware. Quote, with everything must go in the way we talked about it, we were the most timid we'd ever been because we were very nervous. It was strange because it was the most unmanix we've been about an album. And then it was the most successful. Yeah, we, we should say that if you do not know anything about this band, uh, fans of this band will refer to them as the Mannix. That's a that's a regular thing. So we may refer to them as the Mannix going forward. Uh, th- that's 1996 is when that record comes out. And it's their fourth album. Since then, they've put out another 10. Uh, and the most recent came out in the fall of 21. So they are still very active. But let's go back to the very beginning of this band and dig into the mystery a little bit. One of those great middle school stories. Uh, it's got to be amazing to know people from middle school you're in a band with. They all meet, they're like 15 or 16 in school together. And they have this tragedy. And what is so interesting to me is that it, to your point, does not break the band apart. There are actually no lineup changes with the exception of one early bass player who's gone uh, in like 85 or 88. And then Richie who disappears. Otherwise, it's the same dudes for almost four decades now. And those dudes, I first, number one, the guy on vocals, I wish my parents had named me this. James Dean Bradfield plays <laughs> guitar and vocals. Also, Nikki Way on bass and Sean Moore on drums. Sean and James are the cousins, and they grew up together and even share a room and a set of bunk beds for a while um, during their ch- childhood. So really kind of more yeah, like brothers. More like, more really. like bros for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they'll focus on writing the music in the early days of the band and let Nikki write the lyrics. But the beginning, these guys were really, you know, uh, BPE, big punk energy. And this is where context and timing become important to this story. Uh, This is late 80s, early 90s, UK and Ireland. And, And what scene is emerging in the late 80s in the UK and Ireland? It's the freaking shoegaze, dude. That's what's happening. <laughs> you like you love shoegaze. Am I am I overstating that? No, no. I mean, I own a jazz master. And anybody else that knows anything about a guitar, like you can kind of make fun of dudes that have a jazz master. <laughs> but 
Um, if you if you don't listen to shoegaze and you don't know what it is, it's it's music where the vocals are not up front. The vocals are kind of back in the mix. The guitars are really distorted with lots of effects and feedback, and it's just loud as hell. Like the idea is that there's a lot of volume. My Bloody Valentine is one of the more famous ones uh, bands, and they were super loud. Jesus and Mary Chain, super famous band. Um, so Catherine Wheel, that's another one. Uh, I love all those bands, right? Um, it, but it gets yeah, its, so that it, scene was happening then. In addition to Britpop, now we have shoegaze, and it gets its name because people are looking at their shoes and their guitar pedals to sort of figure out what they need to do next to make this sound right. And they're not moving around; they're not super animated, and so this really is in contrast to what the Manics are doing. I definitely came kind of backwards to My Bloody Valentine and Catherine Wheel and all those bands after being exposed in the mid-90s to this quasi-Christian rock band that was on Tooth & Nail Records called Starflyer 59. Did you ever listen to that band? Only because of you, dude. I didn't know they were... (laughs) I did not know other shoegazers existed. Definitely some that were, you know, uh, in that genre, too. The bottom line here... As the Manic Street Preachers emerge at a time where being aggressive is somewhat counterculture. Yeah. They want to be loud and in your face. And shoe, shoegaze bands want to stand there, bong hits, freak show, <laughs> and play, hit the pedals, just freaking out, man. And they that's what they want to do. And when you're jumping up and down and being more aggressive, those are diametrically depo- like opposed rock and roll bands. This is actually a quote from Richie Edwards. Quote, we started at a time when rock and roll was dead. The UK was in the grip of dance, rap, and acid house. All that Manchester stuff that sounded so contrived, and the only real rock and roll was coming out of America. We were consciously reaching and reacting against all of that, and our friends laughed at us because they said there was no audience for us. But we felt we had to do something to bring back rock and roll. So, I mean, it is punk rock, uh, especially to the degree that it is not punk enough for the bass player that leaves that's like why he leaves you guys you guys have sold out but they put a single song out later in that year at the end of the 80s i believe it's 88 89 uh the song is called suicide alley and it's still like if you go back and listen to this you can find it wherever you stream and you'll get a glimpse of of who they were but also of like who they'll become because even in these early days this song totally rips and it's totally melodic but it's very much not shoegaze uh, it is hard not to move and feel animated while listening to it, let alone, I can't imagine, while performing it. Yeah, so this happens. And then after this, this is when Richie Edwards joins the band, right? Well, he went to school with them. So he's around. And I read things that said he drove the van for them. And he was like their roadie when they're first starting That's out. awesome. I, which is really cool. Uh, and, and this is, becomes the conversation around Richie is that... He is not a great musician, but he is a personality, and he is a magnet just for eyeballs and for people to be engaged. And so they they figure this out, and they basically sort of try to teach him how to play guitar so that they can keep him around. And he will join, at this point, uh, the band officially and become known as their second guitar player. And here's a quote from The Independent. Uh, that might be helpful. What's the name of the the guy on Ted Lasso, the the journalist from the Independent? Oh, yeah. was, Trent, Trent Krim. <laughs> Trent Krim, the Independent. The Independent. 
quote, Edwards was both central to the Manic's allure and an outsider in its own ensemble. He wasn't really a musician and rarely got involved in the studio. On stage, his amp was frequently turned down. He was there to be looked at, not listened to. End quote, far out. It's said that he would actually mime playing the guitar. Like, that was a regular thing. He would just pretend. But he did contribute lyrically. Like, we mentioned Nicky Wire is writing those words in the beginning. By the Holy Bible, which becomes sort of their landmark, and we're gonna that album's going to come up a lot. It comes out in 1994. Richie is said to be responsible for more than three-fourths of the words that are said on that record. Yeah, totally far out. And he had a lot of influence on the music and image in terms of direction. They listened to him. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the piece that you just referred to from Trent Krim at The Independent, uh, <laughs> they call him, quote, the heart and bruised soul of the group. The heart and mm-hmm. bruised soul of the group. And that's what makes this story compelling, because his disappearance actually doesn't change much from their day-to-day function. Like, they can still be sort of the exact same thing without him on stage. But he very much leaves a giant hole in the band because... That he is so much of the like sort of the energy that keeps them moving at the time, uh, and now their motivation changes when he's not in the band anymore. Yeah, and you had mentioned that Richie never really gets good at guitar, but at first, none of these guys are super proficient as musicians anyway, right? And what gets them into, and a lot of it with Richie's help, is being provocative especially to music journalists. I mean, listen, these guys come on the scene claiming to have more in common with guys you loved, right? So mm-hmm. they, they show up in this scene and it's all, it's my bloody Valentine and it's noise and it's no movement on stage. And they are very much aping guns and roses and Motley Crue. And, and they did not hide their ambition. The other thing about shoegaze is it's never meant to be commercial, right? And these guys are very right. much ready to be commercial. They didn't hide their ambition. They were open about wanting success, which again was not something that the other bands that they were around were into. This is a Nicky wire quote. Again, when we started, we said we wanted to be the biggest band in the world. It wasn't for money or fame. It was because we felt like we had something to say. Yeah. Here is my most favorite part of the episode. Straight up. There's a key song in the catalog and I believe they even close with it like in the last night that Richie Edwards is on stage with them and it's called you love us. And it shows this fuck you attitude they have early on. Yeah. But, but the B side is a live cover of GNRs. It's so easy. (laughs) That says everything you need to know about this band, man. It says everything. That's, I mean, that's it. Cause if I said, have you heard the manic street preachers? And you said, no, it's like they do a cover of it's so easy. I've kind of given you like which train track they're down. Right. And so this is first phase, right? This is what they sound like at the beginning. They're brash, they're rude, they're full of personality on and off stage. And this is a time where bands are taking a break from being full of personality. But what makes Richie Edwards, Richie Edwards stands out. And like, what do you think it is that makes him so noteworthy in all of this? Well, he had to be committed to the bit, right? If he can't play. Yeah. So the most intense and probably most well-known example of this um, has a lot in common with some other rock stars is there's a razor blade incident. Yeah. That's what he's known for. This is the ultimate example of antagonizing the press. Like very literally, 
uh, and this is where the trigger warning is going to kick the first time. May 15th, 1991. Just walk us through this story. Yeah, I'll start it here, and you're going to – I know you'll help us tag tag in here. We'll, critics at the time have been pretty excited about the band, and there's this NME journalist named Steve Lamack. I think that's how you say his name. And they're starting to have some friction with publicity, as we kind of were alluding to. Yeah, so Steve describes it this way. By the time the uh, of the follow-up, You Love Us – which is the song you just mentioned, we'd started to fall out in public, he, meaning him and the Manic Street Preachers, like his coverage in NME and the Manic Street Preachers. They had a dig at some bands I liked, and I had a dig back, making some rather unkind comments about them in a review of another band called Bleach. And in retort, they dedicated Star Lover to me at their next gig. It was all a bit petty, but I guess it must have been serious stuff at the time. Meanwhile, the press they were getting was unswervingly good, and in some cases, from where I was sitting, hilariously sycophantic. When it came to the re- to reviewing them on tour, NME had a choice. Either we were going to send someone along who would fawn over them and talk about how great they were, or we could go for a more objective opinion. And that's how I ended up going to the Norwich Art Center on May 15, 1991. So the band does a normal interview, and then as it winds down, Richie asks Steve to follow him. And this is Richie himself explaining what happened quote i was talking to steve for an hour to explain ourselves he saw us as four hero worshiping kids trying to replicate our favorite bands and there was no way i could change his mind i didn't abuse him or insult him i just cut myself to show we were no gimmick and that we were pissed off and we were for real and when he says cut himself can i clarify that what he means is he takes out a razor blade and he writes the number four and then the word real into his forearm. Yeah. That, by the way, is my middle name. <laughs> then he keeps talking to the critic as if nothing is happening with blood just pouring out of his arm. So that journalist, Steve, this is him talking again. By the end of... Uh, the conversation was going around in circles. Richie's arm was beginning to look uncomfortably gory. The blood from the first cut had started to trickle down his arm the moment that he finished. And until I saw the photos the next day, I didn't even know what he had written. That's how obscured it was by blood. We'd better do something about that, I said. You're going to mess up the carpet. Yeah. Did you hear him mention pictures? Yeah. I mean, Richie knew how to do a publicity stunt, right? You can find these photos. They're very famous. Just look Richie Edwards, number four, word real, via your favorite search engine. Uh, And this is a legendary stunt, and it's a defining story for Richie. And to a certain degree, it's a defining story for the band, I guess. But through the lens of the 2020s, I think the opinion becomes, wow, that is literally the most self-destructive a person could Mm -hmm. possibly be. And this is probably indicative of a whole lot of other potential issues and might serve as a warning sign to someone's mental state. Yeah. And think about it, too, like the Sex Pistols went on Bill Grundy and then say something outrageous and they just cursed. Right. 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 It, it almost feels benign. Definitely. With someone uh, actually self-harming themselves. Um, and there's there's been a lot of interesting commentary about this now in retrospect regarding what an audience wants to see in terms of agitation and self-destruction. And at some point that probably felt really good. And now how much an audience is to blame when things go sideways 
in those situations. Well, and there's a historical perspective to take into account, right? There's a there's a piece in the show notes from this quasi-academic blog that bills itself as a cross-disciplinary exploration of self-harm. And this piece about Richie was published just a year ago on that site, and it tries to reckon with the for real incident, knowing what we know now, right? So now that we are thinking more about mental health and long-term effects of trauma, et cetera. Uh, but it's also looking at like what they were starting to know then about self-injury. And so it, there's a really good quote from this self-harm researcher named Peter Steggles. Do you have that? I do. Quote, the 1990s marked the period in which, socially speaking, self-harm, quote, arrived, end quote, or came of age through a process of medical recognition, media concern, and public awareness. And it was this coming of age that intervened between Iggy Pop and Richie Edwards, uh. allowing the former to be read as a transgressive punk performer, while the latter is a troubled soul who has mental health problems. And that's what the article about self-harm really struggles with 25 years later. It's this idea of like, when is self-mutilation performance like Iggy Pop? And when is it something that should stop everyone in their tracks and make them call someone, right? There were other indications that people should be concerned about Richie, right? He struggled with anorexia. He had terrible insomnia. He had to medicate that with alcohol. He struggled with depression. And he, much like Sinead O'Connor, who we've talked about recently on the show, they had this way of talking about this publicly. They were not hiding what was happening with them in a time where it was much harder to be transparent than it is today. Yeah. And we mentioned he writes lyrics. So the lyrics include these thoughts and his struggles are all over these albums. There's a song called die in the summertime. And the opening lines are scratch my leg with a rusty nail. Sadly it heals color my hair, but the dye grows out. I can't seem to stay a fixed ideal. The lyrics in Roses in the Hospital also suggest that self-harm is a way to feel something when experiencing numbness. Here's the the, uh, the lyrics to that. Roses in the hospital, stub cigarettes out on my arm. Roses in the hospital, want to feel something of value. Nothing really makes me happy. Heroin is just too trendy. For what it's worth, enemy, even at the time, it, the, it's a British music magazine if you're just catching up. Enemy uh, staff, they fight over whether or not to publish these photos of Richie after the encounter with Steve. And Steve describes this in his memoir. He says, quote, Ed arrived with the photos around noon and the debate over whether we should print them started in earnest. Arguments raged. People took turns to examine the slides. Would the pictures prompt fans to copy him? Was it the best rock and roll statement of the year? Ed told me on the phone the other day that the whole question of whether the shots should or could be used was referred to our legal department, and I never knew that. And obviously they decided to print them, because why wouldn't they? And later, the Mannix will include audio of this as a B-side to a single. So, yeah, the, the actual argument at NME, and I don't know how they get that audio, it's unclear to me, but I did read that in passing somewhere, that that actually ends up on an import or something. Yeah, and that's some gangster shit right that is, there. That is I gangster mean, really, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for real. Uh, when you read about Richie Edwards, uh, this album, The Holy Bible, comes up. Um, because we got, to get to the disappearance, we've got to cover this real quickly. Um, 
the disappearance happens in February of 1995. But if we back up, 1994 is when the Holy Bible comes out. Yeah, and when you read the uh, Richie Edwards, when you read about him, this album comes up quickly because this is the sort of height of his artistic output. And it's the last thing. It's the last thing he ever does. Right, right. And Tom Ewing of Freaky Tiger. By the way, that's really my middle name. Freaky Trigger, but Freaky Tiger should be your middle name. Oh, it's Freaky Trigger. Sorry. I don't know why I suck. suck. (laughs) Freaky Trigger is even better. All right, sorry. Quote, writing about the Holy Bible without somehow addressing the vanishing of Richie Edwards would be pointless. You would only be tracing his outline as you gradually and gingerly tiptoed around it, end quote. Richie's involved in creating the Holy Bible to a very large degree, but he's also very sick while he's creating it. Nicky Wire will say that Edwards' behavior, quote, escalated to a point where everybody got a bit frightened. And in April and May, the Manics are playing in Thailand and other countries and having to worry about Richie because he's habitually cutting himself. So they never really know what he's going to look like when he comes out on stage. Uh, and at one point, they actually, the worst fears are realized, they're playing Bangkok and he walks out on stage with tons of wounds on his chest that he's been in the back cutting that are pretty fresh. But again, he talks openly about this. This is from the enemy around that time. Quote, when I cut myself, I feel so much better. And all the little things that might have been annoying me seem so trivial because I'm concentrating on the pain. And another quote, I'm the sort of person who wakes up in the morning and needs to pour a bottle down my throat. Uh, wow. He also finds out in the middle of recording the Holy Bible that he's got an old friend who's taken his own life. And so he himself will get committed to a psychiatric ward in July of that year. Yeah, and that that's pretty difficult. It had to be very awful for him. When the album finally gets released, the band decides to do dates without him because he's still in the hospital. And he's getting his drinking under control, but he's still not eating right. And he's still cutting himself. But he rejoins the band in the fall that year. Q Magazine famously describes this album, The Holy Bible, this way. I don't know if you saw this quote. Graphic, violent torrent of self-lacerating punk fury, which infamously details the horrors in Richie Edwards' head. Yeah, far out. Um, In September, with Richie in tow, the Manic Street Preachers, Preachers tour Europe with Frickin' swayed and therapy for what would be the last time. Edward's final live performance was at the London Astoria, the 21st of December, 1994. That will be 30 years next year. The concert ended with the band smashing their equipment and damaging the lighting system. That must have been a drag for the promoter and the owner of that club. (laughs) Prompted by Richie's violent destruction of his guitar towards the end of the set closer, the aforementioned song, You Love Us. So now now we come to the day. The day is February 1st, 1995, and Richie vanishes. He uh, is supposed to be going um, on a trip the next day, but he checks into the London Embassy Hotel that night, February 1st. Or no, yeah, the night so, before. The night before, so January 31st. So he doesn't do the press. Doesn't yeah, so they're supposed to go to U.S. 
the U.S. to do press. Almost made it. <laughs> Didn't uh, make it. But instead, he checks out of the hotel at 7 a.m. on the 1st. He gets in his Cavalier, his Vauxhall Cavalier, and he drives back to Wales. And Bradfield, the lead singer, will wake up and knock on his door. He doesn't hear anything. There's no answer. He has to go convince the hotel staff to open up Rue 516. And I'm sure in his mind, he's expecting the worst. Uh, But what they get is an empty room except for a carefully wrapped box with small quotes stuck to the side and three words and a note attached to this box that says, I love you. The next day, the band's manager, whose name is Martin Hall, files a missing person report. And then February 15th, this all goes public. There's an official statement from police. uh, And on the 17th, they find his car at a service station near the Severn Bridge, and it looks like he's been living out of it. And we have to talk about that bridge, right? Well, if you Google this bridge, you're going to get headlines about suicide. That's the quickest way to get us there, right? It's got this reputation. So if a missing person's car is found near the bridge, there are some assumptions made and some suspicions that people will go ahead and try to confirm. But there have been a few holes filled in regarding these days in between of like where. Yeah, because that's like two went. weeks. Bef- yeah. Between them finding like the car. Hours. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's a long time. He was apparently spotted in the Newport passport office and at a Newport bus station by a fan who was unaware that he was missing. The fan claims that they had a whole conversation about a mutual friend. It, it's wild to think about being that fan who has a whole conversation and then goes and tells their buddy, you'll never believe this. I saw Richie Edwards. He's like, dude, nobody knows where Richie Edwards is. <laughs> like you were the only person who has seen Richie Edwards. Uh, there's yeah. a, there's a taxi driver around this time who, who will come forward and say that he's pretty sure he picks up Richie at some point. And he says it happens on February 7th. So this gives us about a week from when he walks out of the hotel uh, says he picks him at King's Hotel, drives him for a while, takes him to Blackwood, which is significant because Blackwood is the neighborhood in which Richie grew up in. And yeah, hometown. Then Richie gets out at a gas station and pays the fare in cash. And the taxi driver is going to say that the passenger, the other reason he's pretty sure it's Richie, is that the guy keeps changing his accent as he talks and he's lying down in the back seat like he just can't sit up and so this all sort of checks out for people as being very richie like behavior would you call that real murdoch like behavior do i like change (laughs) accents when i'm in an uber i probably behave unusually unusual when i'm in an uber anyway um we said they find his car on the 17th but it gets ticketed on the 14th there's a timeline so they eventually will find a toll booth receipt that confirmed he crossed the bridge the day he vanished. This toll booth receipt becomes a big talking point. Like if if we're fully going true crime pod, we would spend like 20 minutes talking about the toll booth receipt because this guy came forward like recently, like in the last few years and is like, "Yeah, dude, I used to work in that toll booth." And during that period, we had a 24-hour clock. And the reason this is significant is that they think they have it figured out that he left the hotel at 7 a.m. And that's like, so he's in the hotel all night, 7 a.m. That's when the sort of the timeline starts. 
But if this is correct, that it was a 24-hour clock, everything they've surmised after this point is wrong because the ticket is for some like somewhere in the 2 o'clock hour, like 2.55. 2, 2.55, yeah. And they have assumed that it is 2.55 p.m. But if it is a true 24-hour clock, that is what in my house growing up we called army time. So That's the morning. Yeah, this is 2 o'clock in the morning. And this would throw everything into question. Um, so who knows? Yeah. And another piece of the mystery has to do with him taking money out of his bank account. He was removing a substantial sum every day for the two weeks before. And there were different speculations as to why. 200 pounds a day. One theory is that he's just cash loading for tour, which I, you know, makes sense, right? The the other is that he had ordered a desk, and he might have been withdrawing money in small amounts to pay for the desk. That doesn't seem to quite hold up because the desk never gets picked up, so that money's floating somewhere. Yeah, and as soon as news gets out about this, a narrative begins about him faking his own death. Yeah, let let's. I mean, let's look at these different stories, right? So, on one hand, given the guy's medical history, the abandoned car location. It, this all sort of seems open and shut to me, right? Like, clearly this is suicide. We know how troubled that guy was. But there's yeah. also this idea that Richie might have just decided to walk away from the spotlight. Like, he might have made it look like a death on purpose. And of course, you know, a beloved and tragic figure vanishes. This reaction's going to happen. This is the same thing that happened to Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac and Elvis, you know, it's like, uh, we think they're all alive. So it makes sense that people are reacting this way, but there are a few pieces of evidence for this story that make it a little more compelling that he might have faked his own death than I would say Elvis or Jim Morrison. Yeah. So here's Richie, a quote from 94, talking about the concept of suicide. Quote, in terms of the S word, that does not enter my mind. It never has done in terms of an attempt because I am stronger than that. I might be a weak person, but I can take pain. No, I mean, that's a guy talking. So I, I can't say that, you know, this is evidence that he didn't kill himself because he said he wouldn't. Like, that doesn't make sense. When you're sick and when you're in pain, you make decisions. People change their minds. But... The weirder, more compelling piece of this has to do with something that comes out about his family background and his uncle. Ah, yes. The uncle. That weird uncle. Anyway, I was thinking about drunk <laughs> uncle. Or as they call my brother-in-law, drunky unky. Um, so I was shocked by this. It all comes out that Richie had an uncle who vanished too. Yeah, this is crazy. In the 60s crazy. or 70s. This is crazy. And then he showed back up like Gilligan's Island weird shit, right? So he had gone to Texas to do a lecture circuit or something. And he just split, went off the grid. So apparently Richie was really interested in the story and his uncle when he was growing up. And he was also very into the idea of guys like J.D. Salinger, who lived reclusively in secret lives. And to add fuel to all this speculation... There are sightings of Richie around the world in the months and years that follow his disappearance. 
Oh, yeah. Just like Elvis after he like, <laughs> passed away. He was going to be citing famous people. I, I mean, sure. I mean, that's true. But without a body, the family has a really hard time. And Richie had just one sibling who's been very vocal about her hopes that he is still alive. And so these reports start coming in that, oh, my God, I saw Richie Edwards. And there's some fairly substantial ones. There's one at the public library, which... You know, that's where I would go. Uh, but there's also one in the Canary Islands, and there's one in Goa, G-O-A. Yeah. Um, there's quite a few books speculating on Richie and his appearance. And one is fairly recent, like five years. It's called Withdrawn Traces. You can find more about it in the show notes. And one of the authors of that book thinks that there is an argument to be made specifically concerning Goa. Goa, we should point it's, out, is in India. Yes. And uh, if you're an American listening to this, you probably have might not know how to find India in, it, in a map, too. But that's <laughs> that's where it's at. So, um, re- yeah, read this theory that this woman has. That's good. Quote, there's every possibility he could have been in Goa. There is every possibility that, like his uncle, he intended to return after 10 years. But who knows what could have happened in the first 10 years of Richie being a missing person. He was spotted in Goa and on the hippie trail. And there's every chance he could have been in Thailand in 2004 and sadly perished in that Boxing Day tsunami. Maybe he intended to come back, but his passing was not of his own choosing. Every hypothesis must be considered when dealing with such a rare and unique missing persons case, end quote. I mean, that's a pretty crazy idea if you think about it. So if he is in this part of the world and we know this part of the world gets a tsunami, what are the chances that he had moved off the grid, had every intention of eventually coming back, but died before he could do it? I mean, it seems a little melodramatic to me, but it's, it's an interesting idea. And this withdrawn traces book has a bunch of other theories too. And, and a lot of them are relatively new to the lore because, I mean, it doesn't come out till 2019, so he's already been gone at that point for 20-something years, right? Like, so it, you know, because we're about to hit the 30th anniversary. There, uh, Apparently, here's one of the theories. Apparently, Richie was in the hospital. Well, you we mentioned this earlier. He had been committed. But while he's in the hospital, he meets a fellow patient from Israel and in the days leading up to this, different people will say that he was talking about going to Israel, that that was of interest to him. So there's this thought that he's just living in Israel. And talk about rumor and innuendo. There's apparently a woman who has said that they were together the night before he disappeared, and he tried to give her his passport. And... There's speculation on top of all of this that he has undiagnosed Asperger's and that he might have just been trying to figure out like a coping mechanism and disappearing was what came up. I mean, nothing adds up. But if it had, we wouldn't really be talking about this, right? Like there's a few people who I'm reminded of in this conversation and we haven't really said their names, but it's touchstones. On, on Richie in general. And the first one I think is really obvious. And that's Sid Vicious. 
Yeah, that's the that, that's the Bill Grundy thing. Like, and he couldn't play. Yeah, well, like, I mean, they have a lot in common. It, he was he was yeah. sort of the street cred. We talked about street cred recently on the show. He was the guy who seemed like the angry anarcho punk that they wanted to sort of project in their early days. Uh, he got eyeballs. He was beautiful. People were captivated by him. And so, you know, I don't know if you can say all those things about Sid Vicious, but I definitely think they served in a, in a similar place. I think the good look part of it, it that's where I get reminded of Michael Hutchins, another person we've talked about on the show a lot, right? And he helped sell the brand of NXS as well. Um, in, in 2000, Caroline Sullivan reflected on Richie Edwards for The Guardian, and she said this about this Sid Vicious comparison that I just made. Read, read what she said. Yeah, drugs certainly didn't help his charisma. Talking about Sid. Sid lacked... Yeah, yeah. Sid lacked what you two called the unforgettable fire. He may have been as emotionally fragile as Edwards, but was missing the intelligence that makes fragility so appealing. Vicious ruined his life, so we don't have to, but no one cared except his mom. Her death a few years ago was more... um, Poignant than her sons, unable to come to terms with losing Simon, as she called Sid, she took her own life in a sad footnote to a whole story. Yeah, the the intelligence and, factor when it comes to Richie is really important. Yeah, he's well read, super educated, and you know if looks are incomp- accompanied by a complex and a poetic personality that's an idol in the making right there. Right. This is more from yeah. that. This is more from that Caroline Sullivan piece. Like, unfortunately those who possess these alluring qualities are often plagued by insecurity. That's aggravated by getting to the top of the rock heap and realizing that nothing has changed. Some opt out at the peak of their youth and talent and pass into legend. Maybe Sid Vicious and, thought by overdosing on heroin at 21, he would join the Lost Boy elite, but he didn't. But did Richie Edwards? That's sort of the question. And what, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned about Richie Edwards is how old he was when he died. He was 27 years old. Yeah. Well, oh, he was the club. He was in the club, yeah. which sort of yeah. makes it seem less. Uh, hard to believe that this was manufactured. Yeah, it's like, oh, you made it. Right, yeah, right. I mean, he went. He went to the twenty-seven club. So here, here's what happens to rap. You know, he still has not been found. People are still obsessing over this, uh, and he does not get assumed dead. Like he's not actually noted uh, in the official record as being dead until two thousand eight. Finally, at that point. Everyone involved gives up and decides to go ahead and count him as lost. But as I said, you know, this one book that has a lot of new theories came out in the last five years. People are still very interested in this for a lot of reasons that I think people are interested in all the stories we tell on this show. Right? I mean, just oh yeah, the the allure, the interest in 
how the other half lives. And then this fascination with people who live tragically and loudly. And, and he really, I think is the ultimate summation of that for a lot of people, especially for British rock fans. Yeah. The, it's better to burn out than fade away. Like it kind of, it fits him too, you know? It, absolutely. And it, it, regardless of, you know, if this is all publicity stunt and the dude's living in Israel or if he truly died on that bridge or elsewhere, there is no disputing the impact that he had on people. Uh, and it was interesting even just reading through articles and doing the research on this show. There is, I, I ran across folks still talking about how important Richie Edwards is to them. I mean, this is just a, a random sampling of that, but they, I ran across this tweet from a, uh, Gemma Smith, 6715, uh, and this is from a couple years ago, but she said, big love to all the Mannix fans who went through some of the worst times of their lives listening to these songs, but got through the other side and are listening now, and I am one of those people. And I mean, that's music in general, right? But specifically, yeah. specifically for a band like this, and specifically for a person like Richie Edwards, to make that sort of impact where it's not just like, hey, we listened to this band when we were in high school, and they remind me of pool parties and keg stands. You know, it's like, this is a band who was with me in the thick of it. And I could feel what it was like to struggle with self-harm and with depression and with anxiety. I could feel those things and I knew I wasn't alone. And that's, it's powerful. I mean, Richie Edwards had a powerful impact on people. Oh, yeah. Um, and last but not least... Jeff, thanks for the letter. It's yeah. such a great thing to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I've always wanted to talk about Manic Street Preachers uh, on this show, just just to tell more people about them if for no other reason, because uh, I love love those records. Uh, make sure you, you put them in rotation this week and see what you think if you're not familiar. We are the story guys at gmail.com if you want to get involved in the show. Uh, if you have a question like Jeff, please shoot it to us and we'll see if we can get it in the queue and try to answer that for you. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories, you're going to find our Patreon with bonus content, bonus newsletters, outtakes, early access to things. And all it takes is you contributing a little cash to the show so that we can continue to produce it at this level and invest our time in it. Uh, we really appreciate that. It's patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. And until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories, y'all. Rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright boy have we got stories productions. All rights reserved.